Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Finance Committee meeting of July 5th, 2023. And could we have the roll call, please? Trustee Esteem. Yes. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Obligacion is excused. Trustee Sign. Here. And Trustee Splendoria. Here. We do have a quorum. Okay, glad to hear it. Uh, is there any public comment? There is not. Okay, so we'll go right to the first item, uh, item A, which is approval of the minutes of the meeting of June 7th, 2023. So a couple of uh, items on the minutes. Sure. So on, um, under the uh, chief financial officer's report, the end of the last paragraph, um, I want to make sure that we're clear that we're going to start presenting um, the cash flow at the end of the financial statement. It doesn't say here, it just says their plan was to end with cash flow. So we'll add to the financial statement. And then- Did you um, have that? Uh, yeah. yeah, I got it. I have it in writing. And then on the second paragraph there, um, we just wanted to make it a, a complete sentence saying that what's, you know, when will the claim issue be fixed? Just to be clear on what trustee obligation um, question actually was. Okay. And then on the uh, one, two, three, fourth paragraph there, the second sentence, um, we put they wanted their own staff and we wanted to be clear that it was the AHS leadership team wants to hire their own staff instead of registered. So just clarify. Okay. okay. I have one, Madam Clerk, and that's on the top of page four of six, uh, where it says, uh, Trustee Signs said, this difference between commercial government payers, I think it should say commercial and government payers. Yes. Oh, okay, thank you. Okay, uh, any other additions or revisions, corrections to the minutes? Okay, can we have a motion please to approve the minutes as revised? Second. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Trustee Steen. Yes. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Sign. Yes. Trustee Spindoria. Aye. The motion passes. Okay. Uh, we are then going to move on to the next item of the agenda, which is the chair report. Uh, and the article titled, Why Are Your Wait Times Getting Longer? Um, and the article talks about uh, emergency room wait times uh, having gotten longer during the period that was studied, which was 2011 to 2021. Um, and I'm wondering you know, what, what our experience here has been over the last few years since this team has been here. How are we uh, adjusting to it if we have to adjust to it? I thank you for asking, Mark. I'll, I'll take the first bite and you can certainly supplement. We have seen wait times going up, and it's a regular conversation that we have with Lori McFadden, who is with Alameda County EMS. And so she sends us a regular report 
with the um, what they call the wall times. And so it's how long a rig will remain before the patients are um, handed over to the ER staff. And um, that's been one of our challenges. Um, we do well at Alameda and at San Leandro. We do not do as well here at uh, the Woman Channel Highland Hospital campus or at John George. I think they're probably for different reasons, um, but there are some opportunities for improvement. So I had a meeting with Lori about 10 days ago where we talked about some, one, some of the things that we're doing because you heard about throughput and when we improve our throughput here at the Wilmot Chan Highland Hospital campus, that will create a, a full capacity, if you will, for the patients to get out of the rig sooner. And so she was very excited to hear about the, you know, the eight or so things that we're doing here and wanted to receive updates on that. Um, as it pertains to John George, my ask of her was that um, we'd like to see comparison data for other counties because they're comparing the John George um, wall times to other emergency rooms in this county, which I think is an apples and oranges comparison. Her comment was, well, it doesn't matter. You still need to get them out of the rigs. And I said, that's true, but it would help us to have a frame of reference that really was for other like facilities to John George. And so she committed to getting back and talking to her colleagues in other counties that have psychiatric acute um, um, emergency, emergency rooms, PESs, to give us a sense of, of reference. But she's right. We do need to improve our ability to get patients out of the rigs at John George. Um, one of the things that's happening is that um, we are insisting that um, there be a complete vitals check in the rig at the emergency department before the patients are allowed to come in. And she was asking why we do that. And, you know, I just didn't have a good answer. And so that's something I'm going to be pursuing with the team at John George to see if we can um, change some of our practices. And how about wait times for patients that don't arrive in ambulances? Uh, mm. What's the, uh, are those wait times going up too? And how are we reacting to that? I think it's a similar, you mean the, the, the walk-in to the ED. I think it's similar to our, frankly, our ambulance load off times um, with Alameda and San Leandro doing better to James's point than, than Highland. Um, I think we've seen our left without being seen gone up a little and we're tracking that um, and that's specifically out of Highland. So there's just a lot of work and that's all of that ED waiting time is part of our um, throughput. One of those, all those 11 throughput initiatives. So um, we expect that to get better as we continue to have some rigor around all of our initiatives. And down the road, we're going to see one of the major emergency rooms in the Community closed when Alpha Bates closes, and that's going to have probably a fairly sizable impact on us. And the birthing center there, yes. which is high volume. High volume. Um, but the, uh, John George actually did, I remember, and James and um, Mark, it might have been after your, you know, your first stint and your departure from there, but we used to have like PES where there were like mattresses on the floor and people there for so long. And once John George started the triaging as people came in, like, and also working with EMS to kind of, you know, to say like, you're full now, like if you're in Washington hospital or somewhere, hold till weekend. So there was all, they did some amazing things, which, so I think it's unfair sometimes to compare John George with, the regular ED because some of it, their improvements were sizable, sizable, given the kind of, you know, acuity and some of the, you know, 
um, yeah. just the complexities of who they see. So that was one. And then at some of our community hospitals, like a part of the IHI collective that we are doing, we had to do a PDSA, like going and observing in our ED to see how it was happening. So I think some of our group went to the um, Highland, uh, Wilma Chan Highland ED, but I was at the San Leandro ED. And one of the things that they do is if they do an immediate triage, like as soon as someone comes in, they do a nurse triage. And sometimes they do, and again, this is not possible probably because there are no beds, but they were doing some of the registration at the bedside instead of having like somebody triage, then you wait and the registration. If a bed was there, they'd roll the registration card yeah. and do it by the bedside. So there were many ways in which they were like, you know, kind of. And the third thing I think is that so many people use the ED as their primary care. And if we could only get our prime people to see the primary or specialty outpatient on time, maybe we'd be able to like reduce the volume of I thank you, um, Chair Banerjee, and you're, I think you're spot on. Um, the bedside registration is one of the things that we're activating. And so we are bringing that to the Wilmachan Highland Hospital campus. And that does a couple of things. Because one, to your point, it takes the action to the bedside. So they're not sitting out waiting. But two, the area where re registration used to be is now going to be used for essentially um, a lower acuity treatment area. So we're going to reutilize that space. And so that's part of the throughput initiatives that are underway right now. So activating bedside registration in the way that we have at the other campuses and then retasking that, that registration space. Oh, nice. Thank you. Certainly. Thank you. Uh, any further questions or comments on this article? All right. Thank you for for what you've contributed on that. And we're ready to move on to item B2, the CFO All right, so this is the uh, May uh, financial report. Uh, I, I do want to uh, let everyone know that we posted last year's letter instead of this year's letter. So we apologize for that. Uh, we will get it corrected in the record. Um, <laughs> the report was accurate. It was just from last year. <laughs> We were well ahead. Yes, we were. <laughs> that, or maybe that was just a wishful thinking or <laughs> to try to slip last year's numbers in. I don't know if the auditors would have caught it or not. <laughs> All right. So this is the actual May 2023 report. <laughs> There we go. So I'm starting with the stats page that you know we're currently using, um, and I know we're going to come back next time with some maybe some ideas to how we want to change it. Um, but I want to uh, talk about a few things here. First, if you look at patient days, they're up seven percent um, year to date. We're ten point four percent. So we actually had uh, fewer patient days. But what's really great about this month, if you look at discharges, we're up above budget 5.3%. We've been behind all year. And you can see that reflected in a lower length of stay at 6.1. 
compared to a budget of 5.9, we're still ahead of it. But if you look year to date, we were at 6.4. So we're starting to see things move. Our throughput is improving in the hospital. And then if you look at CMI, we're actually above budget and above year to date. And typically what happens when the CMI goes up, you have longer lengths of stay. So a good month for us. Uh, in addition to that, we had a positive mix of services. So if you look at trauma cases there, we're 13.6% over budget. The ED was above budget. And that did drive a better commercial payer mix, which helps our bottom line. Surgeries are also up. Again, another one of those um, service mix that helps our organization at 9.3%, most of it outpatient, which is elective, which is good. We're getting patients in. And if you look down at skilled nursing, more good news. Um, although it looks like the average daily census is down 1.1%, if I add back in the paid bed holds, we're actually at a census of 273.5 above budget. And you can see there, our discharges are also increasing. They're up 70% of the month, and length of stay is down. So that's what we want to see. And then clinic visits are up 16.2%. A lot of telehealth visits. And um, RBUs are up. And again, they've been up pretty much all year. But the combination of stuff really um, jumped up the RBUs this month. So this next slide, I leave it here just because length of stay has just been an area that you know we really struggled uh, with during the pandemic. We were still negative 2,502 days, or we had opportunity days where patients stayed longer than we would have expected them to, um, which is counterintuitive based on what I just showed you. But again, it's all based on who's here, what the DRG is, and what the expected length of stay. So here's our results. Um, our net income was ahead of budget by uh, 418,000. Year to date, we're still behind uh, just under 5 million, but this uh, helped us. And um, just to point out at the bottom, we're ending at EBITDA, so we'll need to start looking at cash flow. And the reason why we're doing that is because of the uh, retire, the Gatsby adjustment for leases. So what that did is it makes us show rent expense as an amortization, and it's a true expense that we're actually writing a check for, so we can no longer use EBITDA to get to cash flow. Okay, so here's the revenue slide, and I talked about all those, um, all those nice volumes and, and all of the areas that help our financials. So our gross charges are up 13.1%. So we had a great month in May, much better uh, as a percent over budget than year to date at 7.7. Our collection ratio at 18.5 is better than budget at 18.1, but it's slightly below year to date. Um, our commercial pyramids uh, helped us. Um, just to, to point out, we're at 7.7% in the month, which is still very small, right? But um, our budget was 7.1. So that really makes a difference. Also in regard to um, the net collection ratio, um, we, the longer length of stay 
has a negative impact on our bottom line. And it takes several months for that to come through our modeling. And so we are seeing some degradation on the collection ratio. Question about payer mix. You mentioned we're a little bit above budget on commercial. Does that, do we get those commercial, uh, commercial volume, that commercial volume anywhere other than the ED? Most of it's coming through the trauma program, but there are some, we do have, particularly out in the island, there's so, uh, some Blue Cross and some other commercial patients there. And, 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 and elsewhere too, we have them sometimes at John George or in the skilled nurses. In terms of service lines, I think ortho might well, have a little, that. And, 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 and I haven't checked this, but maybe CV as well, I have not well, I was thinking also too with all the you know, high. I think it's an excellent point. I was talking to Dr. Um, Stefano uh, last week, just doing the rounding, and he was saying that he's got a number of commercial patients, and he's very optimistic that now with the changes that Mark is leading in terms of getting our center of excellence over at San Leandro, Dr. Stefano is very optimistic that he'll be able to get this, you know, start eating into this backlog, if you will because they're gonna have the facilities available at San Leandro. And so I think that is a way for us to get some more discretionary um, commercial payers in the system in a way that we just have not previously. Good. Would that, would that when we do that, like does that increase the waiting time for some of our, those who don't have, like in terms of like that, I know the margins will be better, but does that in any case, in any way kind of, you know, expand like, yeah, I hear the question. I, I don't think so. We can certainly look at that because right now um, we're going to be activating rooms that were not being used previously. So it's yeah. not as if this is going to displace other work that was already happening. This is essentially us expanding capacity. Mark, you know, check me if I'm no, wrong. We should not be making triage decisions in terms of who gets surgery first based on their insurance. So, um, and I'm not aware of that happening. Good, anymore. good. It's Great. more clinical need. It's more We've been losing them previously because they were going elsewhere. They were waiting too long, and although they wanted, whether it was Dr. Perny or Dr. DeStefano, to do their case, they just couldn't wait for those gentlemen to have some, you know, capacity to do their work. And so it will be an uptick for us there, um, without I think impacting the other folks who were in the queue as well. Yeah, so exciting and so needed. Thank you. Okay, so here's the other government program slide. And um, we have uh, this month uh, continued pickup in Measure A. So we're doing it based on run rate. Um, it looks like we're going to come in at about 150,000, uh, which is quite a bit above a budget. And you can see here today we've, we've already recognized 24.4 million more in Measure A than we had budgeted. And just to remind everyone, we thought we'd have a recession. We didn't think we would be increasing our tax revenues. Um, in regard to supplemental programs, in the current month, uh, we had a um, uh, rate range adjustment that's on our Medi-Cal contract. That was a pickup of 5.4, and it was from calendar year 21. And then GME for uh, fiscal year 18, a 2.2 million pickup offset by the, the skilled nursing supplemental, which was a hit of 1.7. And if you look year to date, we're way ahead of budget at um, for the supplemental programs there, 37.4 million, and that is being driven mostly by QIP, the 24.9, and that's because of the COVID threshold 
they eliminated it so that we can max out our dollars. So that was still COVID help. Um, looking down at other operating revenue is over one, 1 million, and that is the retail pharmacy. So we record that based on the timing of the receipts, and it's been doing uh, over budget all year. So moving on to expenses, um, this month we were 17.5 million over or 17.6%, which is even higher as a variance to budget than we are year to date at 13.1. You look at that and it's um, primarily labor costs. Um, I don't wanna read this slide to you. It's the same story in regard to the other variances. The two material ones would be purchase services and materials and supplies most of that being driven off of heads and beds, more patients, higher patient days, more supplies. So if there's no questions, I won't read this to you. I'll move to the next slide. Okay, this is the labor cost, and this is the biggest variance here. And um, we actually have a positive variance to budget in regard to our regular staff. So the entire 7.5% is rate variance. It's in fact the rate's even higher than that because of the volume variance. Um, and we've listed out the, the big drivers there, most of it being the base pay rates because we've made a lot of adjustments since we did the budget. In regard to uh, position salaries, they're over 6.8%, which is pretty consistent with the year. And registry usage, of course, is a, a big variance at 4.3, which is um, not as high as year to date. So you can see that we are reducing our registry costs. And a million dollars less the last month. Yeah, I don't know if you want to add any more comments. No, I, I, think, uh, I think our leadership team is really working hard at a plan to reduce registry and at the same time build up our recruiting. So. Um, we're, we're continuing to hopefully see a continued decline, but a million dollars in a month is fairly substantial. We are moving that. And here's the graph that just uh, uh, kind of shows you, you know, what our, where all our FPEs are. So you can see that um, the gray is overtime. So we our budget was 109 and we pay, actually paid 198. And you can see the green there, the registry, there's 140 um, difference between um, budget and actual. And then if you add the blue and the yellow together, you're gonna see that we have a positive variance of our own staff of uh, just about 88. So that's how you read that. And then you can also look at the trend. It's kind of a busy graph, but it, it uh, helps to really understand what's happening with the labor since our variance is so big. Right. And then moving to benefits, we are over budget um, about 11% for the month, which is more than we are year to date for retirement. And that's being driven by ACERA primarily. And then if you look at the employee benefits there, they're up 26.2%, which is quite a bit more than year to date. But what we've been seeing is our self-funded um, insurance plans really going up a lot more utilization. So I, I don't know what it is. It's it's like everything went down post COVID, you know, during COVID, and then now everybody's going back to the doctor. All the deferred and delayed, all those delayed things, things are now like they're all 
get to know them. All right, so then moving to the balance sheet here, uh, just a couple comments I'll make. Uh, our days in receivable went down, good news. I'll, I have a graph on that uh, next. Net went up, which is odd. Usually they, they hold together, um, but it's, it's very little uh, difference. And then if I go down to the uh, net position, you're gonna see that we deteriorated quite a bit. So I'm gonna talk about that in just a minute. And then our net negative balance, our line of credit with the county is actually receivable. So that's you know, good news. <laughs> it's been that way last month and even at the end of last fiscal year. So here's the graph. Um, a lot of words here, but basically um, our fee-for-service inpatient claims are still being rejected by the state for Medi-Cal. Um, that's about 3.5 days of AR that, are, that is up, even though we went down, but that we would have been down even more if we would have had that collected. The good news is we worked with the state to get them to accept paper claims, and we did get our first payment of $3 million about two weeks ago. So they're actually working with us to get us paid. And as many of you may know, typically the last few weeks of June, the state stops making any payments. Um, and uh, I, I didn't get an update before today's meeting. I was out last week, but I'm sure that was the case this time as well. But we got those paper claims paid. And then our collections were above trend. So that really helped our days. And that's the same story down in uh, PB. Uh, our collections were also above trend. And here's our collections. We are 8.3% above last year. Uh, so we're still, we're still doing a great job here. Um, we still don't have John George posted in Epic, so I am share, showing those separate. And we are still getting little twinkles of legacy from pre-Epic claims. So that's what you're looking at there. Do we have a timeline for when like the Epic Thing for John George behavioral Yeah, so at this point, where we're at is the county, um, they send us a check, but they don't give us the remittance or EOB. So they bill the state, they get an EOB in their billing system, and then they just they cut us a check. And I'm not sure exactly what their process is, but they have not been able to give us a check with the EOB information to post. And with the Care Connect. Not only are we and our end going to get more granular on Epic, but Hixa is also going to. So get what from what there. we're trying to do is build out Epic so that we can yes. use it to actually create the invoice to the county and then post back in it. And then if we do that, we can see which accounts got denied, what the reason code was, so that we can do performance improvement. Got it. So that's that's the plan. The county went to a new system, and I think even though we've been asking for this information, I think because they're going to get rid of insist and they're going to go with the new system, they haven't wanted to invest time and effort in this process. So um, I know that they are uh, kind of on hold right now uh, with their new system. They paused it, so they're having some implementation issues. Uh, so more to come on that. Okay, so I mentioned that we had um, a drop in our equity, and this is the reason. So if you look at the May capital cost receivable, it is zero. It was 43,009,000 last month. We have written off that receivable 
And the reason why we wrote off that receivable is because the county has decided to go ahead and pay for the capital on their buildings and put it on their books. So since they're going to put it on their books, I have to take it off of ours. We can't double count. So um, if you look at the table, which is how we track it, we're going to have to track this on a, you know, off the financial statement. But basically, we're always two years behind. Um, and that's because it takes that long to settle our cost reports. So, uh, so what we do is we record the amount that is attributed to the county-owned buildings. We were putting it as a receivable from the county. Now we've wiped that out. We are tracking what we're paying them because we need to pay over to them whatever percent or whatever dollars were associated with their buildings on our cost report, right? So, and now what we're gonna have to do is get all of the detail for what they spent so that when we get audited on our cost report, we will be able to give it to the auditors and get credit for what they spent, which will then bring more money back to us. So let me make sure I get this. <laughs> Are you saying that the amount that is not yet collected on our cost reports from Medicare and Medi-Cal? We probably collected it because it's two years later, but we don't, we didn't want to, with the county, we did not want to have to be doing adjustments. It's just too difficult. So we just said, we're going to pay over 90% of what is due. Yeah. And then um, that way we would always we should never have to be making reconciliations later but the capital cost receivable is that are, are, so that's not what we expect to get from the payers we've got that already from medical and medicare okay or close to it you you know how the it works you do your your cost report and right. then it you know you might have a positive pickup or a negative one but we don't do anything until we uh, actually have an audited report. We could probably push this up and book stuff sooner, but because it was a payable and a receivable, it didn't matter. It was a moot point. They netted, so it didn't matter. Right. So is this $43 million that was on the books in April, is that amounts that we expected to receive for, for reimbursement for our capital costs, which was like depreciation on the county buildings? Um, and now the county's now the county's going to put it on their own books. Is that correct? They're going to so basically um, we paid over the, the money to them, right? And I, I don't, I'm sure they probably put it in a capital staff. fund somewhere on the county's books. And then they're going to pay for the items on our list, and they're going to put them on their books. Very, I know it's very okay. confusing, and that's. Uh, so we had a receivable from them for the capital improvements that we were going to have to make that they were going to pay us for. They were going to pay, right. And they've decided that they're just going to pay the bills directly when, when we make the improvements. Yeah. So Mark's been meeting with them and, you know, having a lot of conversations about this and they've decided to manage the projects and to go ahead and pay for them directly out of the county. It's um, much easier for us. Operations. Oh yeah. Okay. So we, we credited capital cost receivable and debited fund balance. You got it. Okay. 
So then the next is the uh, forecast of the line of credit. And this one improved significantly since last month, which is good news because we were up there hitting the line of credit balance. Um, and what happened through 36.6 million is that we had intent, thought we would pay the old waiver of 16.1 million in June. And again, we haven't, as we still haven't gotten any updates. So we moved that out a year. So that's 16.1. And then the HPAC amendment was uh, completed with the county and they gave us 12.1 million in cash. And this is another one of those confusing things because it happens two years later. So if I go to the next slide here, you can see the HPAC amendment. You can see 38 minus 40. We only think we're going to keep 2 million. That's the current year activity. But what I'm talking about here is um, prior activity. So it's really difficult to keep track of because everything's so old, you know, two years ago. Um, so anyway, um, the good news there is we're not hitting anywhere near the NNB limit. Uh, the next step is to, um, we want to put the budget into this and see what happens. So this is still based on our forecast, which can't be that far off because we use run rate budgeting. So it can't, I don't expect a huge change, but I do expect a change. All right. And uh, the other thing that we did is we started putting the dates on here of when we, if we have a date or when we're gonna pay these back. And I just wanna point out, we put the waiver recruitment in June of 24. We didn't used to have that, that column in here, we will now. We do not have the Medi-Cal FQHC or the Physician Spa anywhere in our forecast right now. And I, I, um, I, think, I don't think we're gonna end up paying all that. I know we'll pay something on the Physician Spa, but I don't know, I think it'll be 30 million. So big numbers. So that is my report. I can uh, talk about the uh, entity financials if you'd like or change on time, Chair. Well, we have a few minutes if you want to spend five minutes. So you can do that. Do right. five minutes. Okay, so um, these are the entity financial statement. Again, this is the first year we've done this. And a lot of work had to go into this because we were basically taking expenses and pooling them and not directly costing to the entities. So we had to do a lot of changes on the invoices to, to make this happen. Um, but what we wanna look at here is our contribution margin to budget. And if you look at this, um, the FQ clinics are ahead and so is Highland for the month. And if you go across, which you know this, this is the direct margin, so it's a loss of 22.5 million right because this doesn't have our measure a money doesn't have our qip money in here the supplementals and the reason for that being is that those are funds from pools of other sources but we really want to try from a, a, a contribution margin perspective to get as close to break even as we can so that's kind of what the thought was when we did these the next uh page shows how much measure A, if we allocate it based on expenses. Um, GPP and QIP are also just allocated by expenses because we can, you know, we can argue all day long on how to do it. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. These are, these are buckets of funds that go to the system. And then this will tie out to the financial statements that we just reviewed. 
so for the month of May, um, we're at 3.8 million in net income. The year to date, um, pretty much uh, looks similar. We're not we're, we're not positive year to date, but very close to budget. And you can see that the FQ clinics are ahead of budget, and everyone else is not at budget. And then if you follow the allocations, you can see where we are, and then we end up at our 37.1 million uh, net income to the community. Any questions on the report? It's really good to see by entity. So helpful. It's really, it's really telling, and it helps us because when you start to see things like the collection ratio change, you go, why? You know, what happened? And you can immediately, you know, address it instead, because if it's all grouped together, nobody sees it. You know, and the same with expenses. If all of a sudden you see something changing, you go, why? And you can't see it when it's all, you know, netted against everybody else. When we get earlier in, when we have the current fiscal year closed out, uh, maybe September, October, it might be good to set aside a little bit more time to go over the conclusions that we can draw from this first year, where each of the entities are and, and uh, what that means. And I think what uh, Mark Kratzky has been doing with his Moors is using the financial statements. Um, now, granted, we still are finding some issues with them because it, it was a big change, right, in our systems. But uh, Mark and his team are helping us make sure we get it accurate. The biggest piece left is the physician component because the physicians are sitting over like in a separate company and we need to get them into, you know, where they're working. So we know, you know, how much cost is for the Highland ED or for the med surge unit or for the FQ clinic. We need to make sure we got it right. And that's, that's, the, that's our goal for this, the next step for this. Thank you. You and just one of the things too, we were going to yeah. add stats here too. The operations, other conversation of the other changes we'd like to make as far as the dashboard. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll be talking about the dashboard in our next meeting. Okay. Um, any questions for the CFO? Thank you for the report. We're going on now to the COO report which will be an update, an update on John George, and yeah. it'll be Mark and Patty Espeseth, who is the yeah. Chief uh, Administrative Officer for John George. So, so let welcome, me, Patty. Let me give, before I introduce Patty, it's more than Patty, I think. It's, it's also Rodney, our Director of Nursing, and Chip Freed, our um, Director of um, IOP, are also here, since the report encompasses all of about a month ago, you probably recall, um, we had some of our labor partners here um, discussing uh, John George. And since that time, Patty and I and Rodney and the, the leadership team uh, at John George met. We went through the issues. We have another meeting coming up just to follow up on some things that were still outstanding. Um, James and I have also rounded up them um, since, since that meeting. And, you know, we continue our journey of having work to do at John George. It's been a long-standing um, improvement process. At the same time, both James and I heard a lot of really good comments from staff about the progress that is being made. And I just think that perspective exists there as well. So with that, 
Patty, I'm going to turn it over to you and, and Rodney and Chip. Great. Yeah, actually, I've also invited um, Craig um, Beatty, um, who is our new um, interim acting chair and medical director of psychiatry. So he's with us today as well. And I, I think what I'd like to do is just um, run through the presentation. And I've been told I have two hours. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> just, just one and a half. <laughs> okay, so let me start my timer here. Um, let me share screen. Okay. Um, all right, so um, I'm just going to run through this here. And then um, maybe at the end, we, we've got, since we've got have Dr. Freed and Rodney and Dr. Beatty here, if we have questions, they can feel free to chime in if they'd like to. So is everybody looking at a screen that says caring for patients and improving safety? Yes. Right. Um, so here's what I'm gonna to cover today. Um, gonna to talk a little bit about what, our, our, what we've actually been doing and then what we're planning to do um, going forward in both our outpatient highlights and our inpatient services. So starting off with our outpatient services, um, I'm happy to say that um, we successfully launched the wellness programs this year at both um, um, Highland and at Fairmont. And I think the thing that you need to, to know about it is just having a real appreciation for that team that has created this atmosphere where people are really, are really cared for and really have a community. So it's different than a case manager or just getting my meds. It's a place that they go and the patients themselves um, help um, um, help that community experience happen by doing things like having a clothing, clothing closet and participating in barbecues and helping with various tasks throughout the day and having a client council. And it just, it really is a unique and special place. And I'm happy that we have it. The, um, the area that we're looking to grow, which is part of our strategic plan this year, um, is that we're we, we'd really like to expand the lowest level of care, which is medication management and therapy. And we believe that we have more than enough um, patients that would like to be able to access that level of service coming out of um, our EDs and also our primary, our, um, our primary um, care clinics. Um, so we'd like, we believe that there are, you know, hundreds of patients who are, who would be new, who would be considered new to behavioral health care um, that could be uh, really re um, receive the services they need if we start this um, clinic up. And where this is different than um, the, the patient um, group that's being seen in the SUDs. So we are in talks um, again with the county and we're hoping that they will, you know, give us a, um, at least a small contract to get started um, and probably start starting on the Fairmont campus. Um, so that's what's going on with our outpatient setting. Hopping over. Just to, to clarify, these are SMI patients. This is moderate to severe. Right. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, so hopping over to John George. Um, so in the past year, our um, the numbers that we're serving have been pretty consistent over the last five years. We see about 10,000 people a year in psych emergency. And when you come to psych emergency, you, emergency, you do get um, a full psych eval, whether you come in voluntarily or you come in on, on a legal hold on a, a 5150. Um, and out of that, you see, so figure we have about 30 patients or so a day coming in and out of 
that number, there'll be, um, you know, uh, anywhere from five to eight of those who meet medical necessity and really need to get admitted for treatment um, um, for because of being a danger to themselves or others or not able to take care of their food, clothing and shelter. Um, just a little bit about the programming, just reminding everyone that we are the acute level of treatment. So we get people when they're at their absolute worst in crisis, having terrible symptoms. But we have, you know, we've got, we really try to include the community. We really try to get families to come in um, when there are folks who still have family members in their lives. And we work with probably at least 200 different agencies that are part of behavioral health care services, case managers and whatnot who come in um, and help us figure out what are the what are the next steps for people in the program. Um, so besides medication stabilization, it really is milieu treatment. So that's our pet therapy. Um, these are fun. Our activity therapists do this great stuff. Every event, like Super Bowl, they had this football throwing contest. Um, I mean, it's really important that people feel like we care and we we know that you know, 80% of the people there are, are there against their will, will. So we really have to work hard to, um, you know, let them know that we want them to, to we want their emotional needs to be met. And we want them to know that we're going to um, do right by them and, and help them get back on a better path. Um, I love that. Isn't that so cute? Um, Oakland Zoo animals coming to visit us. Um, so I want to get a little more into the, the detail of some of the things dealing with this year. Um, so this is this is a, um, a chart that just shows um, our administrative days, which that means when, so when we have patients who no longer meet medical necessity for the acute level of care, like the, you know, the volume on their voices are down, their symptoms are stable enough. Um, they're, you know, not suicidal anymore. They're, they're ready to move on, but there's a, a good percentage of those people, 24 to 35, who need to step down to a more um, to a to an environment that is still protected, a subacute environment that's either locked or that's a crisis residential. But um, we just there just aren't enough services or beds in the community to accommodate the need that that our doctors and the treatment teams all feel are clinically indicated for some of our folks when they're ready to step down. So what you see here, this shows that this is people being discharged to the community. Um, in, the, in the six and the length of stay of six to seven days that are going to go back to their apartments, their board and cares, independent living. This blue subacute line is showing the length of stay for people that were waiting to get into a, so anywhere from 16 to 24 um, uh, days waiting to get into a mental health rehab center, a lock center like Villa Fairmont is one of the ones in our county or um, into a crisis residential where you can stay for like two weeks to a month to where you're, you're sleeping there too, so your symptoms are really being managed. But some of the other challenges that um, have come up for us this year are that, you know, if you talk to our, the staff that have been working here for years, they will tell you that the level of acuity, not the volume, but the level of acuity coming in to triage and into PES is, is just feels higher than it's ever been. Um, it just feels like it's a, it's just gotten more intense in terms of um, people um, coming in. So um, just so distraught and symptomatic and um, having potential for violence. 
another thing that's happened this um, past year is that, um, you know, we met with the DA's office and they were really clear that um, the intent is to um, is to lower the threshold um, for, uh, for on felonies when people have severe mental illnesses. But part of what's happening is, you know, although I'm wholeheartedly behind and the movement to decriminalize mental illness, um, it, it's we're ending up with people in John George that would have before been held in. in they're not they're not in custody. They're just people that would have been held in um, uh, at Santa Rita that are coming that are instead being held at John George because there just aren't the level of services needed to accommodate um, forensic you know, patients that have um, multiple violent offenses, offend, multiple um, have committed multiple violent crimes. So another way we see this is that um, in the last year we have um, in our um, assault, our assaults are have gone up and our assaults with physical injury. You know, we can we can never totally stop assaults, but we can definitely work towards zero physical injuries. But right now where our rate is this past year, we're up from 2.4 per thousand patient days um, up to 3.1. And when you look at our total numbers of assaults, 24 per, 24% of assaults in uh, fiscal 23 were committed by just three individuals. So we're, look, we're talking about one individual who's assaulted 36 times, you know, and this is somebody our staff care about him. He's got good relationships, but he's got a brain injury. And so he that's he he has impulse control issues, you know, so he'll punch the very nurse that he really likes. That's one of his favorites, for example, when he um, gets upset. So anyway, that's just a real example of what the staff are dealing with. And this this just shows the um, the per thousand patient days this year on on the kind of the ups and downs of, of, of um, looking at that when there's a, a physical injury that's physical injury is typically caused by a, by a punch or a kick. And then um, just want to talk about, so what are we doing about this? So um, you'll recall, we brought in a consultant to kind of, kind of through a book, a book of possible interventions to do. We came up with the, there were like 75 interventions. We came up with our top 20 and proceeded to implement those over the past year. The, I think the things that we've really accomplished are um, the communications increased quite a bit with understanding who are the highest risk for violence and do we have plans for them? And does everybody know this when they come onto their ship when they've been gone? Are we spreading the word? We've also um, changed the environment around people. So we've added evening and weekend programming. Um, we, we've added more comforts to the environment. Like you saw the, the groups and things we've added um, the weighted blank blankets and we're piloting a calming room. Um, also, there's a lot more leadership presence when the, when an overhead code goes off, the leaders from all the different units and PES and also um, Rodney and myself run, we, we also run on the code. So there's just a feeling that people are, are, are having each other's backs is, is the goal, you know, being, being there and understanding what's happening together. Um, so looking forward to this year, um, in continuing to try and get those injuries down to zero, um, we've this is this is our current plan that just came out of every month. We have a, a, a nonviolence committee that includes um, frontline staff um, and leadership looking at okay, how, you know it's a it's a P, it's a plan do check act meeting where we look at what's what are we doing right now is it working or not, 
what can where you know where are the gaps and what can we do differently. So our our big focuses are really on, you know, if you've worked on psych units, when when there's a leader that goes in and tucks the unit in at the beginning of the shift, like who's high risk for violence, who's on it, did we assign people appropriately? Um, hey, let's huddle a little bit. Let's make sure we tuck in so and so. You know, so and so might need an extra snack. All all those real day to day, real time things that you do that can help people feel like their needs are being met. That's a huge piece of it. And this year we're um, we're we're gonna we're changing one of our um, which we'll be sharing this with as the True North metrics come out in I think September, the the final version. Um, we're gonna change our um, last um, our our press gainy to uh, my my emotional needs were met, and sort of have a whole campaign this year around emotional needs that has to do with you know making sure that that we're we're that we're teaching that we're share, sharing that we're that people have the tools they need to have that therapeutic communication. Um, so there's, there's nothing more important than having the staff feel safe and having the patients feel safe. And um, we do have a, l- a little bit of, let's see, oops, wrong direction. Um, one, um, we have one statistic, which um, I think is very good news for um, the people that, that work at John George. Um, which is um, this year, so last year, you know, uh, 21, 1.6 million in temp disability in workers' comp and 1.5 in, 20, in 2022. But this last fiscal year, that's the full accounting for um, last fiscal year. So we dropped from $1.5 million in dollars spent um, on, um, you know, medical temp, temp dis- disability benefits and settlements all the way down to 369 k so that that's a um, you know I'm I'm I hope we can continue to see that I'm I'm I feel really good about that. Um, question, Patty, is that yeah. the kind of number where there's going to be development over the next few years as claims kind of mature and more money gets paid out, so that that number is probably going to go up, which is what usually happens with workers' comp claims. Um. That's not not according to the conversation I had with with Greg Stevens about this, but I'll I would imagine there'd be some of this, but this can include um, settlements that were that were coming up. It's it's when it's the it's the date of when the settlement landed. So it, it, you're right; it may go up some. Yeah, Patty, if I may, because my belief was that they did a reserve, and so they would reserve the funds, and so we right. would not anticipate you know the expenses to go up. But Patty, if you wouldn't mind just confirming with Greg, do we in fact hold a reserve or is there a chance that this number may go up as uh, Trustee Fox has suggested? I mean, it's low enough now that the improvement is tremendous. Sure. Yes. Uh, and and uh, everybody's to be congratulated for it. But I mean, yeah. the normal you know, way these, these workers' comp claims unfold is a couple of years from now, that number could double or even triple depending on how you know claims get presented and yeah. they get to be more intense and whatever. It's a fair point. Yeah. I will um I'll find that information out for you. Get back, send that back. So um just wrapping up here, um this is our I pause. It's James once again. And yeah. I just if I may before we kind of move from the topic of the the injuries, um I just you know we said it to the staff. I want to make sure we say it to the trustees our goal is zero workplace injuries, zero violence against staff. And so 
you know, that may be difficult, if not impossible to achieve, but I never would want there to be a perception that we're okay with yeah, staff being hurt. And so, you know, Patty, I know that that's kind of the, the underlying theme, but I just wanted to make sure the trustees heard that from us and that we are working to, you know, our target is zero and um, we'll do everything we can to continue to decrease the number of injuries sustained by staff. Thanks, James. Yeah, I, I hope people really feel that and see that and, the, and that the, the teams working there can see how much focus is going into this to really try and understand the gaps and, 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 you know, fix the, get the issues um, resolved. So um, really looking at all the things we can do to help patients um, feel that they help them manage their own, own behavior. Um, So this is just about staffing. Um, This is a little bit of more good news here. I think, I think HS, um, last stat I saw the system-wide, the turnover rates are 17%. Um, we're looking at um, 7% for us this year to date um, in the first six months here. This is a calendar year, not fiscal. So you can see compared to 20, for 2021, we um, um, hired 57 people in 2022 and already 36 in the first six months. So in this is in, um, I'm looking at primarily nursing and mental health specialists because that's the bulk of our 350 employees. Um so we've got um, 159 FTEs um, that are positions filled with just um, 20 FTEs that are, that are still to hire in RN and mental health specialist. So I think praise to Rodney and Teresa. They've done a lot of work around this. And I'm excited to see how the new grad program impacts us as well. Um, okay. So just to end, to end up here, just to share a little bit of kudos to our staff Um you know, our staff participates in community events. You know, we, we are, we're always doing this year. Again, we did our fundraisers to bring fundraisers to bring in um, with, with national Alliance on mental illness to have really nice presents for everybody during the holidays. There's our little gingerbread house contest, which we should have won. Um, we participated in the uh, suicide prevention um, walk um, at, at Laney this year with other uh, teams from behavioral health care. And here's our, um, staff um, getting backpacks for the, the schools. Um, we had 96% uh, participation in the score survey this year. So we're, we're, kind of, we're getting down to the proofs in the pudding part now, which is making, you know, real plans that are meaningful to the different um, units and um, areas um, to try and, you know, move the bar on, on morale. Um this is just some team celebrations. That's OT and activity off having, doing an off work event, having fun. Um, excited that um, our Daisy Award winner, Chica, um, she's in, in the middle there with a the colorful shirt. Shirt. She's I literally, I don't think a month has gone by where somebody, um, where a patient doesn't write her name in to a patient satisfaction survey saying, Chica was great. She made me feel special. You know, she took care. She she is the best nurse. So we're excited to give her the um, award. That's some of our other managers there. Um, and then also we're, we we keep the celebrations going. We just did our we just did our thank you barbecue to the staff last week. This is stuff from last year back barbecue uh, retirement party nursing week. Um, Teresa Cooper serving up the breakfast. She gets up early. Um, and then finally, I just want to end on this slide. Um, so three years ago, and you know, uh, Rodney and I were not here at the, that time, but 
but the one of the surveyors came back that was here three years ago, and this was somebody who just just threw the book at John George at that time. Um, uh, just you know, it it was a you know just a one of those like a Bible's worth of um, of elements to fix. And th- this that same person came back this year, and this is um, uh, some of what he said to our um, some of our regulatory friends. Um, he said, you know, this is like night and day since last time I was here. There's a different feeling in the air, a real presence from the staff. It was really nice to work with people who are so present and engaged. So I'm, I'm really proud of the team there. And if, you know, if you, if you come visit, you'll, you'll feel it. You'll, you'll have that experience um, like we've had at the Fairmont Outpatient for years where you can, you can feel the state staff engaged and you can, you can see the care. And it's really, um, it's, it's really pretty incredible to, to see that level of commitment from people. So thank you. Do you guys like well, to do questions? I have one more question. And that is at the beginning of your report, you were talking about patients coming in to PES uh, more acutely um, disturbed than before. Does that have anything to do with the level of dual diagnosis or, or substance abuse that you're seeing with incoming patients, is that greater than it has been in prior years? You know, um, we don't have the data to back that up. That's one of our questions. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there've been different um, waves of different drugs over year that over the year that have been dominant. But I think, I think our, our take is it's um, something like um, 75 to 80% of people coming into PES um, do have something in their system. Thank you so much, Patty and team, and like huge congratulations for the zero findings. I mean, that is phenomenal for a place like John George. Um, I I know that uh, in the past when we had, when we've partnered with NAMI to have the mentors on discharge or some of those other things, when, uh, when the peer support, do we have, do we have that now? You know what we have is we um, we started with um, with Alameda County's um, uh, in our own voice. So we have the in our own voice presenters come three times a week. It's six different presenters that go to all the units and present on what it's like to you know it's the the hope message. You know what it's like to live with a mental illness, go through hospitalizations, and actually get better. And I've also um, they've also just started. Um, they're now integrated into our new higher orientation. So we have someone with lived experience from the NAMI group coming to um, new hire to um, to tell the staff what it's like to to be hospitalized and to try and you know pull for empathy, but also to give them hope that people really do get better. And your thirty day, I mean, readmissions and things are those on the good trend. Now, how, uh, yes. how do you what do you see those as your readmission rate? Yeah, our our thirty our under thirty day is um is is on a good trend. Um, it's um we had one little spike, but we're we're lower than the national average, and we're um we're also um uh it basically it's the it's it's our only always green item on the True North metric. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's after the discharge when a lot of them yeah, suddenly sure. get completely devoid of support in the community, and or you know unless we have IOB and 
uh, you know, so, so really uh, what an amazing program our PHP IOP is and to be able to expand that footprint, the circle of care to more and more. Any further questions for Patty or uh, the rest of the group? Really good information. Thank you for, uh, and congratulations to all of you for the trends being so favorable. It's very encouraging, I think, to the board. And uh, appreciate everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And we really, we will continue to work to um, help the environment become safer. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, next item on the agenda uh, is item C1. Uh, capital infrastructure plan for Alameda Hospital, uh, Mark Fratsky and Mario Harding, Chief Administrative Officer. Um, I'm sharing the screen right now, but I don't see my presentation. Let me just, let me do it again. Okay. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, quite a bit about the ten and a half million dollars of infrastructure work that has to be done. But before I start, and by the way, this is here for discussion, not action, and some directionality from the board for me and others working on this project. Um, but just to give some broader context, our planning group, and Debbie Stebbins is on tonight. She's the executive director for the health district. We've been, Dr. Deutsch and she and I have been holding the month, we're up to monthly now, planning meetings. Three major issues, one seismic. Um, we know we've got anywhere from 75 to $100 million of seismic work. Debbie has been, on behalf of the district, communicating with the law firm about the possibility of a revenue bond. Um, um, if we were to move forward with the idea of a revenue bond, um, the $6 million parcel tax would be utilized um, for payment on that every single year. And so as that proceeds, we'll give the board an update because at some point it may be where the, our board has to vote on in terms of whether we want to change the JPA to use the parcel tax toward a loan instead of day-to-day -day operations that it provides us now, number one. Number two, um, the a lot of discussions going on about what programs do we put in there and kim is helping us understand in the at next meetings um, kind of how the differing bed complement and options will pencil out from an roi perspective for us we know the current state and what it's doing we saw that tonight but we need to know if we do make programmatic adjustments moving into the future they're kind of how those pencil out from a financial perspective and then lastly, um, the 10 and a half million that I'm gonna talk about now, we know that there's at least one board of supervisor that has more inquiries around how they may, uh, just inquiries about potential support of the 10 and a half million from the county. 
very early on. In fact, Debbie and I and Dr. Deutsch are meeting with that supervisor tomorrow to have more discussion. And you know, our intent is to say we have an urgent need. Um, we'd love to have ten and a half million dollars. Um, short of that, and, and so more to come on that. But short of that, we've got this plan. And, I, and I'm presenting a couple different options for you, just to, and, and then I'll make a recommendation on which one I think would make the most sense. Now, the ten and a half million dollars um, is for you can see it there: boilers, chillers, cooling towers, pumps. Um, if we incrementally pay this over the course of years up until about 2029, that 10.5 million is going to escalate by, just by way of inflation to 15 million. So every year we'll actually be paying a little more probably than this, than the um, venue that I'm going to show you. But here it is. Um, this is phase, this is option one that this year, fiscal year 23-24, we would pay about one in capital dollars, it could come from our capital emergency fund, which is about 4 million. So 1.8 million of that would be about 50%. We would do three things. One, we would spend $300,000 hooking up utilities um, the, and the outside of the building at Alameda Hospital. So if the system goes completely down before we have it replaced, we could bring in portables, hook them up there, whether it's a chiller or a cooler, whatever it may be. Our director of plant told me that we would have all of the contracts signed with these, um, with the utilities companies and, and portable dealers, et cetera. And he didn't think, regardless if there was something going on, like a major heat wave in our environment, that we wouldn't be in a situation where they're scarce. He feels he could get them at any given time. So that would be the 300. We'd also work on the humidification for 750 and the pumps, expansion, tanks, and air separators all this year for a total of about 1.8 million. Then you can see by year fiscal 24, 25, 26, 27, what our expenditure would be. And as we approach fiscal year 24, that 2.7 will probably be a little higher than that, but probably not 3.8. So you can see it, it'd be much better to get one lump sum where we would not have the inflationary expenditure versus having to do this incrementally. But incrementally is what we um, would be able to do since we don't have $10.5 million sitting around for capital. Here are some of the advantages. Um, with option one, we could replace the new, start replacing with new equipment right away. We would replace it based on priority. By the way, what I showed you was priority. And that came from our engineers and our architects that they said, you know, if you want to prioritize these, this is what you should do. It would be an incremental build over five years and there'd be a reduction of ongoing infrastructure fixes. Um, the, and, and frankly, the $1.8 million that we expand, if we didn't do it, and I'll talk about this in the next um, slide, if we did do it, it is possible that if something goes down, operational expenses might be close to 1.8 million to try to fix things. Okay. All right. The other the other option here is to just spend $300,000 this year on the utility hookups, use utilizing contingency plan escalation, which I'll show you, and and then implement the phase in approach that you saw with option one 
once we know we've got seismic dollars secure and we have a better understanding of hospital programmatic options in terms of ROI. Here are the advantages and risks. Um, we would implement, you know, one of the risks is the ongoing fix. There'd be ongoing break, potentially ongoing breakdowns and fixes that would re potentially require as much many dollars as it would be to um, spend the capital. Lastly, this is what we would do if anything breaks down. We would look internally to see if our in-house facility engineering can fix it. If not, we would go out and have a contractor come in and try to fix it. And if not, we would escalate um, to the portables, bringing the portables in. That's why the 300,000 expenditure is so crucial to get those utilities electrical, water, gases, whatever we need, carried out to the exterior of the building so they could just hook in. So that's it. It's simple. Um, my recommendation um, for the board, and then I want some feedback on this, is the $1.8 million expenditure from emergency capital this year to start fixing um, and making new the infrastructure over time. Um, if we get a $10.5 million bogey from somebody like the county, um, that would help offset the, any expenditure we have right now. So I'm going to pause there and just open it up for any questions uh, the Finance Committee may have. Well, one question I have is, um, we're looking into the possibility of a bond when do we think we'll know? Well, first question is, who is helping us look into that? Are we using uh, a venture, not a venture, I, uh, an underwriter, or um, who's who's helping us look at that possibility? So, and, and and when do we expect we'll have a response as to how feasible that really is? And the reason I'm asking the question is. If we, if we think it's feasible and likely we'll have the money to do the seismic retrofitting for 2030, uh, it makes a 10 or 10 to $15 million capital investment something that we can realize the benefit of for years to come. Mm -hmm. If it's looking like uh, we don't have a source of, of revenue from a potential bond or from some other source for the seismic work, then we can spend considerable amount of money and we, we basically won't have an acute care hospital in 2030. From what I understood, oh, go ahead. You should so the that. first part of your question, um, and Debbie Stebbins is on, so Debbie, if you feel free, feel free to augment anything I may be missing. Um, but Debbie, the, the district by way of Debbie has hired a law firm to look into the possibilities. It hasn't gotten to the bankers or the underwriters yet, Alan. So we're probably looking at, I don't know, three months to get more specificity around your questions. That would be my guess. But the, okay, so- if I, if I don't wanna interrupt, but I can talk a little bit about who specifically we're working with. And it is a bond council out of the law firm of Foley, which Alan, you may know uh, through other sure. connections. But it's a man named Brian Quint. Uh, we're just probably days away of in, uh, engaging him legally to be bond counsel. And we're working in concert. He's done about 300 of these revenue, hospital revenue bond financings 
um, most of them are secured by the the revenue or the bottom line proceeds of whatever results from a capital uh, project financing. In our case, what, what we've talked about with him, and he thinks it's a elegant solution, that uh, instead of being secured by, you know, net income pro produced by a capital improvement, this would be secured by the parcel tax with the uh, approval of the AHS board because it would be a change to the JPA. Um, but that's a far less risky bond measure for purchaser of bonds uh, than would be the, the more conventional hospital revenue bond. So I've, I'm engaged with a financial analyst who works with Brian Quint from Foley, who um, has done also about 300 of these bond financings in the state of California, and, and a lot of them with district hospitals. Okay. So we think in about three months, we'll have a better idea okay. of whether at least Foley thinks that uh, the bonds would sell, basically. I right. guess that's the question, right? yeah. whether a, an investment banker would underwrite it, uh, in which case yeah. they basically guarantee that they'll sell. If not, they'll give us the money. Um, or whether it's... Uh, yeah. And we have to go to plan B, whatever that would yeah. be. Yeah, but, but if we were to take that approach, um, do we have even a vague number of, if it's 30 years, let's say, what the annual service of this debt would be, which represents a shortfall to the system revenue that we have today? And you know, we have some outlook that revenue would somehow increase to cover that, or you know, what would that look like? Well, just the six million without any interest is 108 million over 30 years. So, um, you know, and that's without the interest on top of that. Yeah. Well, it depends what kind of bond you're going to issue. So, if if you issue, uh, if you're able to issue a variable rate bond, say, then it's some. It's possible if interest rates go down that the interest could be quite a bit less than than what you're thinking about as you know prime rate or something like that or you know what a 30-year treasury might pay which is maybe six six percent now I don't know if that's I'm just guessing yeah. but you know if you were to do something like a variable rate bond with a seven-day seven-day put option you could get the interest rate way down but whether that would sell that's another issue. That's, I yeah, think, absolutely why we need to engage the experts on this and get a read. And if I could suggest, it might be good to create a small work group with AHS participation as well as the district to work with this firm and, and talk through some of the options and ramifications that relate to the bond financing. It was, I believe the JPA was signed jointly, wasn't it? Absolutely, in 2014. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that up until the 2030 seismic decision making, which we're in the process, as Mark pointed out, of planning for right now through our joint committee, um, AHS under the JPA is responsible for uh, ongoing maintenance of the campus, including the HVAC infrastructure. 
So while I understand people's uh, interest in linking this to future sources of revenue coming, or not to revenue, but financing coming from um, a bond financing, this is a problem that affects Alameda Hospital today and will for the next you know, seven years until we get to the 2030 project. And right now, given our planning on the options for the 2030 project, um, we're gonna need seven years to get that accomplished. So where, uh, where the financing would kick in through a bond, we'd have to talk about that with bond council too. Do we know, uh, and this is a little bit off the subject, Funding the ten. Do we know what the level of support for rebuild hospital of the the citizens of Alameda? Oh, I should I should clarify this kind of bond financing. The one of the values, if you want to look at it that way, maybe from a community input standpoint, it's not as positive. This does not require a vote of the citizens of Alameda. This is all done directly through a security um, provided by the parcel tax. I, I understand have, that, but I'm wondering if it did go to a vote of the, of the people in Alameda, how would they vote? I mean, because I, 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 I know we've talked about a, a lot of a lot of the people in Alameda are going off the island for healthcare. And if they had a new facility, is it likely that that would change? Uh, that's part one of my question. I guess part two of my question is, uh, when was the last time the assessment was changed, if ever, in, in, Allen, in the district? And would the people of Alameda support an increase, I don't know of what level, in order to have the hospital rebuilt? This is just my opinion, but um, first of all, the parcel tax was passed in 2002 is $298 per parcel. It's one of the highest in California for a parcel tax. It does not inflate at all, but it has no sunset unless there are changes that were built into the statute in 2002, which right now lists the requirement for acute care beds and for an ED. So some of the program changes we're talking about in the joint planning committee could potentially, if they, if an option was considered to not have acute care or an ED, would cancel out the, the very existence of the parcel tax. I don't know the answer, um, Trustee Fox, to your question about the current um, voter opinions about that. Um, that's something that, you know, maybe we need to look at further. Um, there's a lot of things that go into those. We've opinions. actually had some discussion about whether there's the will right now for a bond to be passed in Alameda. And there's a general feeling that no, there, there's probably not the will um, right now to do that. And I think that's not just how they value the hospital. A lot of our argument at the district in terms of getting some grace in terms of the, the requirements and the timing of the requirements has been the fact that Alameda is a uniquely geographically challenged community, which would have no health care uh, in the in the wake of eliminating the hospital in the event of a seismic uh, event, would be cut off from Oakland uh, generally, um, would maybe be 
isolated for days, if not weeks after a seismic event. So those play into that as well. I'm not sure today if everybody in the community, 75,000 people appreciate that. Um, but recently I read a study that Alameda is one of the most um, high-risk districts in terms of consequences of a seismic event, in part because of geography and also a lot of the, the island is on landfill and there could be liquefaction um, risks in that as well. So that's part of our discussion. Also, there's a couple other pieces of that. We did just pass a school bond measure and we have this completely renovated the old high school that had been closed for many years for seismics very expensive. And, um, you've got like something like five or 8,000 new housing units coming in down, you know, most of which are really expensive. Yeah. Um, and remember the partial tax did pass before, not by a lot, but it did pass by the required two thirds. Um, and so when people hear those arguments, start to think about those arguments, they might think about it differently. But at the moment, we're not talking about going to the voters. We're not talking about a, a bond measure that people would, would be in addition or separate from the partial tax. We're talking about using the revenue stream that we have, which is, a, you know, is there and is firm. The real challenge around that is how does AHS deal with this, you know, shortfall that the money would now be diverted toward the facility. And the other thing is, uh, Trustee Fox, we're not really talking, going to the residents saying you're going to have this shiny new hospital. What we're doing is shoring up the existing hospital so it doesn't fall down. It's not a new facility, as I, as I understand. So, uh, okay. Chair Fox, if I may, uh, just the question or the issue that um, Debbie and Ms. Stebbins uh, brought up in terms of our obligations under the JPA, while generally we are uh, obligated generally to um, maintain the facilities, but that's only to the extent that the upgrades, these current ones, the workers and chillers, only to the extent that they are not related and included in the 2030 seismic retrofit. So if they're a part of that, we're not obligated to do that. Of course, James has said, mentioned plenty of times, we will certainly honor our obligations under the JPA and we will collaborate with our uh, partners, but just thought I should mention that. Okay. Trustee Splendorio has his hand up. Okay, uh, Splend. Okay, well, thank you, Ahmad. That was my, I have a series of questions as I am incredibly, um, hesitant on Alameda Hospital uh, since I've been on LAFCO for almost two decades and seen how hospital districts throughout the state should not exist. And I'm not saying Alameda should not exist. It just, I'm just very uh, hesitant <laughs> because I've seen what has happened with money. Um, and sorry, but that's, that's my background. Um, and so, but uh, Ahmad, you answered, I think you answered the first question. So, and maybe Mark, the 1.8 million, does that fit within our agreement? What, what the JPA? No, no, yeah, the, the JPA, is, is that, is that, I'm trying to understand, does that fit within the JPA? Or, or is that something that's considered repair or maintenance? Uh, yeah. Splits, uh, Trustee Splendorio, so uh, to that point, of, uh, I just mentioned, to the extent these upgrades are related to the 2030 seismic requirements, they do not, to the extent okay. that they are. I think that's a question that 
you know, the, the district will have a different position on than we will. Uh, but I don't know if that answers your question. Well, okay, I, what I'm hearing is that somebody has decided that this 1.8 has some upgrades and some of it are just are repair and maintenance. That's what I'm hearing. And that, that has to be resolved before we spend any money. That's what I'm hearing. That's, that's correct. Okay, so so that has to have a discussion between the, the hospital district, maybe the county of Alameda, and AHS to decide how much uh, uh, of that 1.8 uh, AHS funds. Th that's what I'm hearing. What I heard was that the yes. uh, what this what is happening this the 1.8 is maintenance. The 1.8 is all upgrades of the of the equipment that exists today. So all of it is it doesn't fit. None of it, I should say, none of it fits within oh, the JPA obligation. Oh, no, I'm looking at the JPA. I completely disagree. These are not seismic. Upgrades. It's not. Well, excuse me. It's not our. It's not our job to, to decide. I'm sorry. That's for our staff to tell us and advise us or outside counsel. I just yeah. want to frame the issue. Is yeah. How, so that's all I'm saying. So Splend, the 1.5 million of the 1.8 is for upgrades of existing equipment. The 300,000 is for the stubbing up of utilities outside the hospital or to be able to bring in portable um, equipment if needed. If, if, if I may, just a point of clarification, because I think the word upgrade is probably part of the problem because this is a part of the maintenance that's required to keep these systems operational. So it's an upgrade, but it's necessary to maintain yeah. the today's operations, operations, today's operations, I believe. Is that fair to say, Martin? And so, so to say upgrade, it's not as if we're trying to do something for 2030. What we're doing is maintaining the current operations and sustaining some things that can't happen right now because of breakdowns. And that's our obligation under the JPA. That's exactly what I was saying, is that some of the humidification and things are needed to maintain operations today. Okay, so that has to be that that's somebody's going to come back and make a, a recommendation or suggestion as to how much it, or all of it fits within the JPA as uh, as maintenance yeah. or repairs. That is, I am I clear on that? What we're going to get? Or do we know that now? Or, or well, will we ever know that? I mean, at some well, point we need to know that. So because I'm, I'm telling you where I'm going to draw a line of my vote. I'm telling you right now where I'm going to draw the line. Well, but the language of the joint powers agreement says that AHS and the district acknowledge that expenditures for the operational, financial, and capital needs of Alameda Hospital shall be required for the continued operation of Alameda Hospital. It doesn't just say maintenance and repair, it says capital needs that are required for the continued operation so, of Alameda Hospital. Um, so everything on the list, Glenn, and Mario, correct me if I'm wrong, you've worked with the engineers on this, but everything on the list is not to repair a crack in a boiler is to replace the boilers. So everything on the list is for, for the code blue, acute care tower, fifth floor, room 5515. This is an all clear message for the code blue, acute care tower, fifth floor, room 5515. It's to replace existing infrastructure. That's okay. That's correct, Mark. I mean, it is basically gutting out all the physical plant, the HVAC, um, and replacing it with new. And, um, you know, we, we spend about a couple hundred thousand dollars a, a year 
uh, probably in the last five to six years, just maintaining and keeping the existing um, equipment up based upon our annual expenses. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. It is absolutely net new infrastructure upgrade. Okay. So again, I'm just going to, when we get to a vote on this, I'm going to be asking, does it fit within our obligations under the JPA? And that's what I want to, you know, that's what I want to hear at some point. Yes or no, or some or all. And at this point, this is not something we're going to vote on tonight. Right. I understood. I'm just, but I'm telling you what I, what I I want to hear. All right. Well, this discussion is to provide guidance to administration. So that sounds like exactly what That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Uh, Now, not only let me make some other comments. A lot of the discussion that started at the beginning sounded like, you know, we're standing well, when you used to sit in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a new car showroom and deciding on what kind of car we want to buy or what kind of leather we want when we don't even know why we're buying the car, where we're going. Like talking about a bond and and I mean, I want to understand. And again, I'm not this is not for the one point eight, but at some point I want to know, has the has the health, the have we has the city of Alameda has the health. Alameda Health District perform some sort of analysis of what it really needs in the community. Because I'm not so sure just saying we're going to seismically upgrade it to give what exactly it needs today is the fairest way, not even the fairest way, the right answer, most prudent thing to understand. I know I've mentioned this privately to others, but that to me, this is an opportunity to understand what the community needs and to either rebuild or build what it really, really needs. And I, I'm hoping that happens and you have a few years to do that, but I think that's imperative um, that, that I, I want to make that point across um, and and hopefully that you all hear, and maybe I'll, I'm the only one, but I hope you hear that. That has to happen. Actually, so like, that that is what I was going to ask as well, because I, I feel like we are We've had a lot of conversation at our retreat and also today and, and others about cost, legality. And I feel like it, it, it feels like we're at loggerheads and we may not necessarily need to be there. Be, but it also feels like we have competing priorities that what I hear from Debbie as representative to the district, save the acute care hospital at all costs. And what I'm hearing from AHS is uh, we're not sure if we can afford all of this, uh, and, and, and that's paraphrasing. But I think that I'm hoping I'm summing it up correctly. This is what I'm getting, and I agree with you, Splen, that we don't have a fair analysis of what the community might benefit from. We opened the meeting tonight talking about a reduction in emergency room beds, and you know, our last meeting we talked about length of stay and hours in the emergency room and how many beds we actually have in our capacity. How do we fully utilize the resource that we have today? And what is our strategic plan going forward? And, I, and I'm sure we have a strategic plan for this that maybe just hasn't been discussed publicly and openly. And you know, if it's about legal negotiations and obligations, how do we put that aside and really just like yeah. get to a piece of, a, a piece of court? Yeah, and I think what Splend has described and you articulated is we haven't accomplished yet, and we need to, and that's part of the work of the planning group. 
what do we need? What does the community need? And what does AHS need? And therein lies the friction mm -hmm. within the group because there, there's differing opinions around that. Now we've got five scenarios we're gonna be looking at in terms of different bed complement, different programs, et cetera. And I'm hopeful that we'll rally around one of those scenarios and kind of see what the ROI is, et cetera, on it. But to Splint's point, I wanna see that all of you deserve to see that, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, and in the meantime, we got to keep it up. And, and it might be that the process of putting together a bond offering statement will necessarily address some of these things. Right, that's a question. No, it won't. I'm sorry, Alan, it will not. You're, you're trying to go to the bank. You don't even know what you, why you're asking for the money. You have to tell them why you want the money. I, I mean, I disagree with you. That makes no well, sense. From what I understood is that even if, you know, uh, with the um, the strategic plan that comes out, whether it's going to be a med right. surge ED unit or it's going to be like mental health or SNF or something, some of these things will be needed no matter what iteration it is in. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I mean, so even if you get rid of all the acute care, you get rid of the ED, you still have to maintain the plant boilers, chillers, HVAC, so If the seismic, we say, okay, we don't have 200 million or 185 million to do that measure, it will go away and it will become some, another iteration, yeah. sniff or, you know, like post acute yeah. or something. These things will still, still be needed for they that. Will. What there are is a scenario where no seismic work would have to be done. Yes. And that's completely subacute without an ED. To Debbie's point, we'd lose the parcel task, tax. Okay, um, but that would be the scenario um, where where it just it would only require remodeling. And, and, and frankly, you know, sometimes with remodeling, you can get people ready to give to you. Of course, I mean, mental health programs, etc. Right. So, um, but, anyway. but in that scenario, just really quick, just CSD, in that scenario, it would go to a if we no longer have any uh, ED or acute beds, we would no longer would no longer stay with AHS. That's one of the obligations of the JPA is to that we maintain a X amount of beds in an emergency need. I see. Uh, I understand that. Uh, what I'm saying is is the current as drafted today, the JPA requires X amount of beds, acute beds, right. and an emergency right. room. So if we do put into the uh, uh, mental health or staff that, or something, that's, we no longer, and, and we're going to transition the trip. JPA's gone at that right. point. Right, we would have to a new agreement if right. AHS even wanted to use this building. Right. Or we could just say, thanks for the air conditioner. We're going to turn into a motel or something. Right. the district, although the district wouldn't exist anymore because right. the, the statute that created the district. That's right. Predicated on this acute care uh, scenario as well, so that would be an interesting case to think about this building sitting there. And it takes you back to the point that Splen makes so well: is there really ought to be a broader, overarching plan to to under support some of these decisions? So, Splen, I guess your point is that if these are not revenue bonds, then there would not have to be any kind of a projection of what the hospital is going to do. 
because the, the debt service is all going to be would all be covered by the tax uh, the tax proceeds every year. Well, no, I'm going to revenues of the of the hospital going forward wouldn't matter. No, that's not my point. But I, I by the way, I want to stop and appreciate David for making my point a lot better and, and explaining it because I just think there should be an overall strategy plan. But Alan, to your point, any underwriter is one, in essence is gonna say, what are you using? I, I understand about funding sources, all right? That whether it's income from operations or generated through the improvements or through its relying as collateral, the, uh, 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 the parcel tax, any way an under, either way an underwriter is gonna know what are you spending the money on? Because I, because an underwriter needs to understand that it can be paid back, right? It could be we just want a bunch of money secured by repayment through the parcel tax, and we're going to use it for operations. That's fine. I mean, that's all fine. I just think it needs to be specified. That's 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 what I'm trying to get to to say is we need to know not just for the underwriter, but for all of us, for the community, for Alameda, the county, the city, the hospital district, for HS. What, what is the intent? What is the eventual purpose of Alameda Hospital? That's what I'm trying to get across. We yep. need to know that. Yep, agreed. Agreed. If, if I may, just, and this may be redundant, I apologize. We have an obligation under the JPA and we are prepared to fulfill our obligation. And that's the plan that Mark has presented this evening. What Trustee Splendorio just said is absolutely right. And to a certain extent, that was in the presentation that was delivered by the healthcare district representatives at the retreat. There were the various options. There was the one that was verbally stated, but it wasn't in the presentation, but that was the one where you would have a, you know, a non-acute use of that facility. And so those aspects are out there. I think we've got to do the drill down that Trustee Splendorio was talking about. But what we're presenting now is our plan to fulfill our obligation under the JPA. And of the two options you presented today, you made a recommendation, One. though we are not taking any action right. today, right. but you've already made a recommendation mm -hmm. to us about which option. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this broader discussion about the, you know, the healthcare needs of the of Alameda County or the community is not entirely our province, right? We're just one of the providers. There's Kaiser, there's other, there are other providers. And that's a broader issue. And that's that really, I, in my mind, falls under the governance of the supervisors and what the, the broader community wants. You know, and so that's something that, that, that you know, that, that conversation isn't something that's just in our purview. It's about the community. What does the community think? Because the purview, of, you know, from the perspective of our system, it's a different it's a very different perspective. You know, we're looking to survive and be effective as a health system, but what do the people in the community want? You know, what is the real value of this island issue? Well, yeah, hard to judge. what the people in the community want, but what the, and then the other issue is what the people of the community need. And what that might be is just a plan for care of people in the event of an earthquake. Debbie? Uh, yes, thanks. Um, just a couple of comments. One, I agree with a lot of the comments would be that were made tonight nothing would please me more as a representative of the district to see the process of our joint planning escalated and to be that fully presented to the ahs board so you can evaluate whether or not alameda hospital is an important part of the 
the system at AHS as it was envisioned to be in 2014 when we entered into this agreement. That said, I think the evaluation of the importance of Alameda Hospital as part of the AHS system is a much broader issue than just to the citizens of Alameda. Most of the patients we see in long-term care and a good part in, uh, in acute care come from the rest of the county now. So in the absence, let's say Alameda Hospital gets blown off the face of the earth next week, that's gonna have a big impact on the county. And I think this board has to really, as a part of your responsibility uh, to serving the citizens of, Al of Alameda County, has to evaluate that. And that's exactly what we've been trying to do with the Joint Planning Committee. And nothing has frustrated me more than the fact that that hasn't been approached in an urgent way. Thank you. Okay, good point. I'm not sure where that leaves us in terms of planning um, for the county's needs, but do you have what you need? I do, yes. To move forward? Yes. At least for the next few months? Yes. Yep, thank you. Any other comments on this issue? Okay. We're gonna move on then to item D1, approval of the contracts. And we have uh, three contracts that we're talking about tonight. One of them, the first one is uh, the agreement for neurological surgery services with uh, UCSF. Uh, the second is uh, Bay Community, Bay Area Community Services for medical respite and residential services. And the third is the agreement with Infor for uh, enterprise resource planning software services. Does anyone even want to uh, bring one of these contracts up for discussion? I'll move approval of both. All three? Um, three of them? Oh, I'm sorry. I had to flip the, flip the, the iPad. All three. Okay. <laughs> we have a second. Second. Second by Trustee Esteem. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Stein. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Okay. We are at the end of our agenda. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I guess we are not meeting in August. Correct. So we will all be back the first Wednesday of September. Can I ask one follow-up question? Sure. When we asked about, when you asked about the uh, staffing of the positions, we want to report back. Should that come to this meeting, HR, or board? I said, I think in my in my request, I requested that a report be made to the board. And I think that's the appropriate yeah. place. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure we're tracking because we, uh, Trustee Banerjee and I were talking about how we are tracking the agendas after our previous discussion. Right. Just want to make sure right. we're which attention. ones have to come to committee, which right. ones have to come to full board. So, yeah. 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 
my thinking on the matter is that it's something important enough that the board should understand our what we plan to hire, but also what our where our deficiencies are in terms of our our medical staff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. We're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.